0: Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons. I'm your co-host, Kim Wilson. In this episode, Brian and I sat down to talk with Garrett Felber. Garrett is assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi. He is also the author of Those Who Know, Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement and the Carceral State, and co-author of The Portable Malcolm X Reader with the late Manning Marable. Felber was the lead organizer of the Making and Unmaking Mass Incarceration Conference and a project director of the Parchment Oral History Project, a collaborative oral history archival and documentary storytelling project on incarceration in Mississippi. In 2016, Felber co-founded Liberation Literacy, an abolitionist collective inside and outside Oregon prisons. In 2020, he helped launch Study and Struggle a bilingual political education program on abolition and immigrant justice, which supports and collaborates with grassroots organizations in Mississippi. Felber is currently a fellow at the Hutchings Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University, where he will be working on his next book project, We Are All Political Prisoners, The Revolutionary Life of Martin Sostra. In this episode, we focus on studying struggle, Garrett's most recent project. But before we get to the interview, we have a few quick notes. We wanted to send a shout out to everyone who has responded to our calls, requesting support for my sons, Paul and Claude, this year. They both have been thrilled to receive your books and letters, and it means a lot to all of us to see a wonderful community that this podcast has built over the years. Thank you so much for your support. And finally, if you'd like to show and want to help us keep going, please consider making a donation or subscribing to give just a few dollars a month. You can head over to beyondprisons.com backslash donate. And if you can't give but still want to help, you can rate, review, and subscribe, which helps boost our visibility. Or you can tell your friends, family, and followers, comrades, and anyone else about us. Spreading the word really helps. That's it for now. Here's our conversation with Garrett Felber.
1: Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're both really glad to have you on the show today. There's so much that we want to talk to you about that I'm not, I'm pretty sure that we're not going to cover it all (laughs) in this episode and we'll probably be having you back in the future. Um, You know, we wanted to talk to you about uh, study and struggle the project that you've been working on the last few months, um, as well as hopefully, if we get to it, some of the book—the bu- book that you published, uh, "Those Who Know Don't Say," and the book that you're working on right now with uh, about Martin Sostre. Um, but to start, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what study and struggle is for anybody who hasn't heard about it, um, the inspiration behind it, and how it sort of came together, and just sort of set the stage for uh, the conversation that we want to have. Um, around your work with this project?
2: So first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, Like I told you, it's really been something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. So I'm ecstatic to to be with you. Um, So study and struggle, I mean, there's a couple of kind of early points of origin. I think one of them was really just when I took the job in Mississippi the question that came to mind for me was how could i help close parchment um and and that you know just using my position within the university and networks and whatever it is to sort of support movement work and um one of the things that came up was that there were groups who were trying to close parchment mostly through sort of a litigation framework Mm -hmm. and i think needed um, knew that they needed the community organizing piece. And so I sort of suggested, um, as I always do, it always comes back to political education as sort of, um, a multi pronged tool that, you know, gets people sort of thinking radically, but also building together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had proposed these sort of closed parchment reading groups and that never really got off the ground but then we had the Making and Unmaking Mass Incarceration Conference. Um, and one of the conversations that came out of, of MUMI was a group of professors at Dartmouth who wanted to do sort of a domestic study abroad program for undocumented students who couldn't um, actually leave the country, but who would go to Mississippi and participate in kind of direct action and organizing. So we kind of, um, merge those ideas and study and struggle, especially with COVID was just um, the first phase of that. So Mm -hmm. basically, um, we um, got a bunch of people together and came up with a four month curriculum around the intersections of abolition and immigrant detention, which was really responding to the two crises that had happened in Mississippi in 2019. Um, One was the largest ice raid in US history, um nearly 700 people you know arrested by ice in in august of 2019 and then the crisis that um, started later that year or came to a head really of just deaths in mdoc custody Um, and i believe this year we're now almost to 100 Um, but that really started in late december of last year so the curriculum is fully available online it's bilingual in english and Spanish. we support about 150 folks in Mississippi prisons who host um, these study groups and that means sending them all the materials either books printing them off Um, and then we have these monthly critical conversation series which we just had our final one last night Um, and those kind of frame the questions for each month and we print those off and send them inside as well and then All those folks inside are connected to people around the country and really the world who also have groups through a pen pal program. So, you know, the idea is like political education, getting stuff inside, connecting people across prison walls, um, you know, thinking about building together and learning together and how that's related to, to, you know, direct action and political struggle.
0: So one of the questions that you ask on uh, the study and struggle, you know, the the first session, the first question is, why do we study? And, you know, I really like that question and I'd love to know how you respond to that as, you know, as a historian, as an organizer and as an abolitionist.
2: I love that question. Um, I guess I love it (laughs) because you're asking me a question about a question that I love. Um, (laughs) So that sounds narcissistic. Um, No, I, you know, I think we get this a lot, right, when, um, so I've done a lot of different types of political education formations inside, and you get to this point, usually pretty quickly where someone or a lot of people are like, okay, but why are we doing, like, let's do an action, let's go, you know, this feels like spinning our wheels, we're just reading these books, Um, and that's not just inside, that's everywhere, Mm -hmm. and so I think, being clear about study as action that it's not it's not a precursor to it's not you know it's always in some sort of dialectical relationship with what we typically consider as actions um so just understanding that this is something that all movements have done I mean I think we might talk on the website about you know um previous like the black panther party the young lords um third world women's alliance like these are all organizations that struggled with the same question of what is the relationship between political education and action and you know i love this um this piece of johanna fernandez's book about the young lords where um they're sort of facing this question and they're going around the neighborhood and like asking people what do you need and they and people are just like we need garbage pickup Mm -hmm. And they start doing the garbage pickup alongside political education as a way to build the organization. So I think for me, it's about always understanding that, you know, if you're just doing garbage pickup, like that's not going to free us, right? That's Mm -hmm. a much needed service, but we have to be thinking about how that relates to the big picture. But if we're just reading about the young lords, and never doing the sort of essential community things that address the the material needs that people have, that's also not gonna get us free. So I always sort of understand study as one sort of core component like mutual aid um, that that all sort of make up kind of an ecosystem of organizing. And I think what I find, I mean, it's obviously just something I can do (laughs) from my position as, you know, as a historian and um, with the kind of access I have and resources. Um, But I also just think it becomes a really good occasion to get different groups of people together and talking. Like, I I just think that act of reading collectively. So I think that's important, too, that when I say study, I'm usually thinking about a collective act. Mm -hmm. It's not something that, you know, we think of when we think of, like, education, because education in our country gets totally hyper individualized, like everything where study is just like you and your books. I mean, like that, even that scene in Malcolm's autobiography, like him becoming politicized is about like pouring over the dictionary. and, Mm -hmm. And that's so I think misrepresents even how the NOI politicized people in prisons, which was through study groups. Like people studied black history together. They studied Arabic, they prayed together. You know, he was part of the debate team. So that was all communal. And it's not just about pouring over texts and kind of coming to epiphanies. It's like through a collective grappling with the relationship of material needs and what we're fighting for.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I I appreciate that you brought up that example because I think that you know when we talk about study in a lot of people's minds, as you pointed out, it's it really is this hyper individual kind of thing. Like you know, you go off to of study in the library by yourself, or you're sitting in your room, you know, reading a book by yourself. And I think you know one of the one of the things that really um, makes it difficult to overcome that is that for a lot of people, that's what they, they they pride themselves on that, right? Like they say, oh, well, I'm going to read these 20 books this weekend, right? (laughs) It's like, you know, are, what are you reading them for? Who are you reading them with? Are you in conversation with other people? And, you know, it's, um, I find that, Sometimes, and you know you're an academic, so you you know you know you get this uh the we tend to obscure the fact that so much of our work depends on other people and how we refine our ideas, and you know thinking is about this you know constant engagement with others, right, and when we Peel back, you know, the curtain and and show people, okay, this is what this thing looks like. It's messy. It's complicated. It's, we don't have all the answers. No one person does um, that. That can be really useful and freeing for a lot of people who are like, oh, I thought you meant study in a very different way, right? That this is studying together and I don't have to come, you know, I don't have to show up to the Zoom meeting with all the answers or I don't have to write you and have all of the answers to these questions. And, you know, that we're going to continue having, you know, th- this conversation over a long period of time, right? That That is a much more meaningful kind of engagement, Um with material, with ideas, um, with, you know, things around abolition, but also a kind of praxis that, um, that pushes us in a very different direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly it. Like,
2: and this is why I hate academia. It's because
0: <laughs> We're <on> it,
2: <laughs> it just, it reifies this idea that it's about sort of like virtuosic performative brilliance. And and that ideas belong to people and Mm. that you can even have an idea. That's such a ridiculous notion that you have an idea that's not collective, you know, because (laughs) all of our ideas are collective. And I think learning is so much about the opposite of what we think it is as this isolated performative thing. It's about humility and listening and conversation. And I love, um, Grace Lee Boggs has this, um, piece. I think it's in conversations in Maine about conversation and just how important conversation is and how unique it is to humans. And and I love that um, framing of the book just because that's what study is: it's conversation and it's collective and it's grounded in a sort of understanding that you're you're not the most important person in the room. You know that that it's yeah. about learning um, collectively.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I was having a uh, conversation with someone inside not long ago and, you know, they they've been doing a lot of reading and, you know, they were like, my God, every time I read something, I feel like I know less right? <laughs> Which is like, I'm like, I know that feeling. I'm every single time I'm like, I, I learned something new. And then it's like, wow, there's so much more to still learn, right? But it's um something that I, I also want to touch on, because um, I think that this is an important part of, you know, uh, study and struggle. Uh, and something that Rachel Herzing said in the first session that you did with Haymarket is, you know, studying with, with a goal in mind, right? So if the ultimate goal is to dismantle the prison industrial complex, what, you know, that that we're studying for a purpose, that purpose could be, you know, any number of things in the immediate, right? To better your conditions or whatever, Um, but it's also collective to change all of our conditions. And I was wondering if you had something to, you know, to add to that.
2: Um, I mean, the first thing is just that I love Rachel's, framing and thinking about political education um you know she she talks about it not being about understanding politics but about like doing politics and and having and creating power um and i think that's even something that gets kind of you know people have that phrase knowledge is power but it's like knowledge in itself that's that it kind of obfuscates like the, the action that's involved in that. So it's not just that having knowledge is sort of inherently powerful. It's like we create and learn with this power in mind. So I love her framing of that and just thinking about, yeah, that our our knowledge is only important insofar as we're putting it towards something mm-hmm. um, and that it's not an end in itself. And again, it's why the classroom, the sort of like traditional classroom is such a terrible, terrible model because people come in there and their objectives are totally worked. They're like credit, a grade, you know, like, and, and it's sort of like everyone has their own individual reason for being in there. And that's completely different than a study group.
0: Mm-hmm. Like a study
2: group is like, we're coming together around a shared goal. Um, it's not about credit. I mean, that was really transformative for me when I first started teaching in prison because there was no credit to be conveyed. There were no grades. And I realized how fundamentally that changed the way we learned.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: ever since then, I've been struggling to teach sort of traditional, whatever that, you know, you want to call that, Um, like in a campus setting. Because I'm just like, this is awful. This is not how learning should take place.
0: Yeah. And once
2: you've experienced the study group. Yeah. No, go ahead.
0: No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's it. I mean,
2: it's just really, I think I I, I remember reading um, for the first time that really great piece that Robin Kelly has in um, the Boston Review, um, Black Study, Black Struggle. He talks about the limitations of the university and the importance of study groups. And I remember at that time thinking like, what are these study groups? They sound amazing. But like, I didn't, you know, I wasn't taking any part in any study groups. I was I was thinking about like traditional learning and the classroom. So Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, yeah, it's totally transformative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to piggyback on what what you said and, you know, in terms of uh, commiserating with you about, you know, um, the experience of, you know, teaching in, in a traditional setting, um, which is, you know, which is a challenge. (laughs) It becomes about, you know, assessments and student evaluations and about all these other things that really have nothing to do with, you know, study, right, with the actual thing, right? It's about, like you said, you know, graduating and all that stuff. And I think that uh, one of the texts that you have in the first session um, in a a reading list uh, is Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that book, for me, really was transformative after i read that i was just like um yeah i can't go back to teaching the other way you know and I, i've taught inside um not for very long at all so i know that there are a lot of people listening that have decades of experience teaching inside but you know um my experience was also really um very different and uh and you know it, it just when you think about you know uh the classroom is, it could be a site of incredible um, kind of, you know, disruptive, you know, transformative uh, work. And it's not, right? It's not. It's about, you know, checking off boxes and things like that. I know this is going to piss off a lot of people listening. Um, that's, that's kind of where we are. But when we think about, you know, it's like disrupting that model, the study group, as you pointed out, is not about having, you know, um, an expert in front of the room, right? Like, it's not about being lectured to, right? Like, with that, if you're approaching a study group in that way, you're doing it wrong, right? Like, you're coming to it with a sense of okay everyone here has something to contribute everyone here as you said you know uh garrett uh, approaching it with a sense of humility has something to learn right that if you feel like you already have everything figured out then why are you here right <laughs> it's just not that's not what that space is for and uh and for the, for a particular struggle, right? Because it's like if you're trying to improve conditions inside of a prison and you form a group around that, then that's the that's the struggle, right? That's the struggle. If you're doing it out here, as you you know your example um, of you know the organizing with the Young Lords and you know trash removal and and combining political education, then you're doing it for that purpose, right? But you're building on top of that as well and um, and you're you're trying different things and I, I feel like the kind of innovation um if that's even the word i want to use uh within a traditional classroom setting is kind of lacking um but anyway we're going to we're not yeah. going to spend our time um bashing academia because i feel like you know i do that almost every episode i'm proud of that um but we want to we want to focus on on what study and struggle really is
2: <laughs> yeah I mean I do want to say as long as we're pissing people off I'll say um, I think I I have a real beef with the higher ed in prison thing because so much of it becomes about reproducing the university within the prison and pretending that by proximity to the prison that's somehow radical work and it's not it's you know it's taking all of the hierarchies um, of the university and of the classroom that we're talking about and then Layering those into all the oppressive forms of you know domination that happen within the prison, and yeah. I just think there's such a disconnect for so many people within the the you know hep higher ed- higher ed and prisons world around you know like accreditation and like what being hung up on accreditation and what that means and um and just this really. Um, I think violent disconnect from like where they're coming from and what the university represents and that model represents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent, a hundred percent agree uh, with that. And I think that, yeah, that space uh, deserves a much more in-depth uh, critique um, than, you know, we're going to do today. Um, but yes, absolutely. And we could do a deep dive into that um if, if we if we want to go in that direction but um yeah no wanna... go, a,
2: go a different direction i just wanted to throw it out there absolutely, <laughs>
0: absolutely. no I, i'm i'm with you on that i'm with you on that i think that you know there's uh yeah yeah brian did you want to ask a question <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sure I'll, I'll handle this uh, <laughs> um yeah I, I guess i was just kind of thinking about um the conversation you two were having there and thinking about my own education and, and sort of the benefit of study groups, particularly study groups like this. And one thing that came to my mind, um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not worth very much, but, um, you know, I think the thing about studying collectively and and doing this collectively is that you have sort of more of a venue to make connections across issues, across geographies, you know, you're not siloed into just talking about like, crime and the police and prisons, but you can also then, through conversation, bit branch out to talk about the environment, or this and that, and sort of have a more holistic view about how these things operate in the world. Um, and, you know, I noticed uh, the, the session that you ended with in December um, pertains to abolition and transnational freedom struggles and connecting struggles, like, you know, for example, uh, Ferguson and Palestine is commonly pointed out, um, and I, I guess I don't even know if there's a question here necessarily, but I was just sort of reacting um, to the conversation about the benefits of doing this work collectively and thinking about the importance of uh, in terms of movement building and in terms of sort of having a more holistic vision of making those connections. Um, so I don't know if, if you had anything to say about that in, in the context of study and struggle, but just something that came to my mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, only to say that, actually, yeah, that's a really great point that I didn't really bring up about study and struggle, which is that I think many of the outside groups, um, especially because of COVID and them them taking place all on Zoom, um, has made them really sort of cross disciplinary. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there are are some groups that I know that are like um, all people within a healthcare setting um just coming together like as coworkers, to do this um and then others are kind of this constellation of like people from humanities and stem and different things and anytime i've been a part of those conversations or just overheard um people kind of debriefing yeah what they realize is like how how carceral all of these systems are so you have mm-hmm. people from schools k through 12 people who are healthcare workers and they're all sort of like drawing connections where they realize all the the big picture punishment um, that happens and how the spaces are about disciplining, you know, um, deviant performing groups. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, things that you like, my partner's a, a nurse and all the time mm-hmm. she's coming home with things where she's like, okay, listen to this, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. how this like social system works. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, okay, I had no idea about how carceral this was. So yeah, just to say, I think it, it is really important to get people who are um, coming from different jobs and fields um, to think about how, because then you start to realize like how, yeah, this is not um, the so-called criminal legal system. Like it's it's everywhere. It's not right. we're not just focusing on policing and prisons.
0: Just the points that you made about this kind of interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, whatever, um, you know groups that are coming together to to read and to think and, and work through and, and, you know, um, an act, is that what you mean by building radical community? Or do you have, you know, a different what, what is your sense of what radical community is, uh, in terms of study and struggle?
2: Wow, that's a great hard hitting question, Kim. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's like, it's so important to, to really like, be precise about what we mean with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in part, it's about just expanding the sort of footprint of abolition, like just drawing these connections. I mean, I'm struck all the time by like, um, I think it was in the conversation with, um, with Nick Essie's where he said sort of, you know, the State enacts violence intersectionally, so we don't our movements you know it's about kind of recognizing that latent intersectionality um, I'm sure he said it better than that, but you know I think that's that's part of it is like the state violence happens across all these different planes, and then we often attack them sort of issue by issue in these like siloed disciplinary ways um that don't allow us to get to the root, to the like radical solution. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things we're trying to do with study and struggle, obviously. Um, But I think one of them, and when we're talking about building radical community, it's just trying to facilitate deeper connections between all the ways that people under capitalism get sectioned off. And one of those is incarcerated, non-incarcerated, one of those is disciplinary fields one of them is you know geography and then you know rural urban so i just i think we're trying to be creative about the different ways that we might bring people however clumsily like i i have no sort of um fantasy that that this isn't awkward and clumsy for people and that like pen pal writing is really difficult and that assumptions are made on both sides and um that all of it's really messy but i think that messiness is required otherwise we're going to build more isolated movements um that have sort of firmer lines drawn around them about like who can be in who's out um and i think that's a detriment to all of us um I think we do need to be clear about, you know, when we say X, what does that mean? So I appreciate this question. Um, because we can't just say abolition means whatever, welcome to the movement. There's no commitments here. Um, but I do think that it's also important to draw people into those conversations and sort of start with where people think they're entering, um, and, and just expand the movement. Cause I mean, all of us are super burnt out, right? Like we're just so the capacity that we need is so large that I think even I'll give one small example. So because my partner's a nurse, there's some people around her that are in healthcare and they've gotten linked in with prison health news. Um, and I don't know if you know about their work, but they do, you Mm -hmm. know, sending answering questions that people have inside about health. And so that's just like one small way that people who are in healthcare can begin, you know, corresponding with people inside and and trying to use the skills that they have in the same way that as a historian, you know, I have more access to, you know, publishers and I can send books um, on radical movements. And I just think it kind of takes everyone thinking about the space that they're in and how they can mobilize what they have around them um, for the movement. I don't know if that answered your question, but
0: No, it does. It does. I think it was, no, really, I think it was it, tough. No, I, I just yeah, because I, I um I heard that uh I heard you mention that term uh in one of the sessions and I was just like a really um one when I when I hear uh, these kinds of terms or we talk about you know freedom or liberation or any of these things or you know uh, radical imagination or whatever, um, That sometimes, you know, we assume that most of us know what that means, or we have, and then, (laughs) and then we find out that we don't, right? That we have uh, some of us have very different notions of what that is, and that's okay. It's not that we all need to agree on X, but in terms of, you know, uh, building a kind of. what's the what's the phrase here it's not so much a shared language or maybe it is um a shared understanding right of of what it is that that we're doing even if we don't agree study and
1: struggle as you mentioned earlier is um coming to an end right like it was a, i think a, a four-month project if that's correct um that you've been working on the last session was this month and i guess coming out of it and i don't know maybe this is a little bit of a, <laughs> a corny question but like you know how do you feel about how it went? And like, are there any any reflections on it that you would want to make at this point? Um, you know,
2: anything that you'd want to say coming out the other end of it? Um, no, that's a good question. I feel like it's, so one of the things that we're sending out today is a survey to um, people who participated in it. So part of it is like, it's so decentralized. I actually feel like I uh, we still need to gather so much data on what people's experiences were with it um and then also you know sit down um with folks inside kind of more intentionally um through letters or whatever to see what their experiences were because um, so much of it has been logistical as you can imagine um yeah. with this type of thing so like that kind of big picture sitting back and seeing like what did people get from it i think is something that we're about to do in this transition yeah. um the thing that was should have been obvious to me when we started this as a four-month thing is that especially people inside would not want to stop at four months. Like Mm -hmm. even weeks into this, people were like, wait, but what happened in January? Which is a very legitimate question because as you know, so many of these projects and people, I mean, it's just, if you're incarcerated, people come in and out of your life and it's just like, well, what happened with that? You know, because someone takes something on, it's too much or they lose interest or they move or whatever. I mean, I've been guilty of certainly moving a lot um and just like yeah and certainly taking on too much so i'm describing myself here um so it's a really important question to think about like when you start something what is your long-term commitment to it so so right now we're figuring out how to continue some form i mean i don't we don't have the capacity to continue this level of kind of curriculum programming logistics um but I, that's what we're grappling with right now is like how to at least keep the, the folks in Mississippi prisons going, um, and supported mm-hmm. through the kind of next iteration of this, which I think will probably be something similar next fall. Um, mm-hmm. cool. but yeah, I'm, I think still kind of waiting to hear back what the, what people's experiences were across the, across the board. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, Um. as a follow-up to that, I wanted to ask, so the website that currently exists for study and struggle um, that includes the curriculum, that will remain uh, or that website will disappear?
2: No, it definitely won't disappear. We need to figure Uh-oh. out some way to archive it. Because um, okay. another, I mean, another part of this is just, especially with the with the translation piece, because that's very time intensive, mm-hmm. is to just keep these resources available for as many people as possible so I mean Mm -hmm. part of this project is just like building a collective archive of resources for everyone to use however they see fit and that yeah we're definitely not going to just lose that
0: okay okay yeah because I can imagine you know um as has happened to me over the years uh you know um searching for one thing and I come across something else and I'm like, how come I didn't know about that? And it's like, oh, wow, look at this entire curriculum and all the readings and all the discussion questions and all these different tools that people spent a lot of time, you know, and energy putting together. And for me, that's like, you know, that's a treasure, right? So (laughs) I feel like the one the readings and these issues and questions um that that you all developed um really don't have an expiration date right like this Mm -hmm. is something that you know a year from now will still be relevant that there will still be you know lots of other people that you know will want to read it come across it you know um and yeah that it's important and that people want it and you know um I for one, if if I have any say, would love to see it, you know, stick around um whatever yeah. whatever iteration um is possible. Uh and that, you know, obviously recognizing not only people's capacity to to do that and maintain that, but also, you know, um the the uh, the financial aspect of it, um, as well. So I don't know, I I was going to ask you a question, um, because it was on your social media. Um, there was an issue with the funding, um, and a school rejecting funding, um, a shit ton of money (laughs) at the beginning of this project. And, um, and you talked about that on, uh, on, on Twitter. Are you comfortable talking about it here? Yeah. I mean, it, It's not um,
2: I mean, I won't get nitty gritty with it, but, you know, the reason that I made it public to begin with was because um, unfortunately that becomes the lever that I have available to me as, you know, an untenured assistant professor at an institution who's, um, you know, they always want to keep things in house. And Mm -hmm. what keeping things in house means is, um, you know, burying it putting me through a bunch of bureaucratic nonsense that goes nowhere. Um, So I've done that. This is not new for the University of Mississippi, as you know, um, both from my experience there and from its storied racist history. So um, yeah, so I, you know, this was a grant, a generous grant from the Landon Foundation to support the work of studying struggle and it was rejected, um, at least told to me by my chair. I don't know whether, I mean, my sense is this is coming from above them, um, and, and you know the reasons I was told that this happened was because this was political work, not historical work. Which obviously that, I mean, I don't know how you can be a historian and believe that divide um, that that binary is somehow um, real. But um, yeah, I mean we're we're good now. We um, again like. I think in the end, we'll be better off because Haymarket is going to be our fiscal sponsor moving forward, which I think will be much better because, of course, having a relationship with your fiscal sponsor that's helpful, Mm -hmm. not antagonistic, is always good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's just the reason you know, the reason I put it on Twitter really is because we talk a lot about structural racism. Mm -hmm. And I feel like This is another one of those terms where, like, people say structural racism, systemic racism, but there's not a clear sense of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And this is a case where plenty of people um, at the University of Mississippi would claim that they are, you know, not racist. They don't support racist things that the university does when there's the glaring thing like the Confederate statue or the, the white student shooting at the Emmett Till sign. They'll say that they're against that um but then when it's about receiving money for a program that supports you know incarcerated people learning um radical history or black history or um about social movements and they reject it they don't see that action as racism Mm -hmm. um it's somehow about like political expediency or doing something on behalf of the department or whatever it is and i just think we need call it what it is um that's how structural racism manifests itself within the university all the time Um, so that's it but yeah
0: -hmm. Yeah. no that's and and i appreciate you uh you know willing to to talk about that because i think that that's important i mean we, we talk about the academy um often uh on on the podcast and uh i'm roundly critical of it uh and you know and all the various ways that, you know, we've we've discussed it. So I think that, you know, it's important to really uh, make it clear to folks how these things operate so that, you know, because uh, earlier this year, you know, um, following the or in the middle of all the George Floyd protests, Every university, you know, in the U.S. seemed to be coming out with some kind of diversity statement, right? And every week, everyone had a statement um, and, you know, something to say. And yet, here we are, right? And it's like, okay, this is what we're talking about. This is the problem. This is, well, not the problem, but it's part of the broader problem, right, that universities have. And... I think making that um, as obvious to people in uh, many ways that we can make it obvious uh, is, is an important thing to do. So I really appreciate you um, talking about that.
2: Yeah. No, and you know from, from being at Mumi right, the, the Charles Overby, like the same university that rejected this money has taken $5 million from someone who sits on the board of Core Civic. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, here's where I'll cuss. Like fuck them. I mean, you just <laughs> you're just so it's just so beyond the the yeah. scope of like I don't have anything to say to that except fuck them. Like we're gonna be fine and Yeah, we'll, we'll do the work outside the university. If that's yep. what the university requires, then we're not gonna you know take our time there. Um, but I just think yeah, I just think we need to be real about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Garrett, I wanted to ask you with the ten minutes uh that we have left, I wanted to talk a little bit about the book that you're currently working on um and maybe if you could just tell folks about about
2: that project, yeah, absolutely. I love this question because the the worst part about publishing a book is that by the time it comes out, you're already onto another thing, and everyone wants to talk about the first book, and I just want to talk about the thing I'm working on um or Perfect. supposed to be working on let's not let's not pretend that <laughs> The pandemic is a super great time to write a book um, yeah so it's it's a biography of of Martin Sastra, who was um, you know a pretty main character in in the first book about the nation of islam, and that's how I came across him was um, in this letter um he was in solitary confinement, this was in the early sixties um, and this Muslim brother was writing to. Malcolm X, and he mentioned Martin Sostra. And so I was like, Oh, who is this, you know, and then I come to find out he's this really internationally known political prisoner. Um, some 1015 years later. And it was just beyond the scope of that book to even get into that. Um, so, you know, really briefly, like his, I just think his life arc is so incredible, and such a a place to explore how someone leads an entire life of um, political struggle and, and, and how they develop and change their ideas. So he was um, a black Puerto Rican born in Harlem, um, influenced by Louis Michaud's black nationalist bookstore, um, got convicted of heroin possession, and sentenced to 12 years in the early 50s. And during that time, he converts to the to the Nation of Islam. um, And that's sort of what I delve into in the, in the first book, um, he becomes a jailhouse lawyer and writes all of these writs um, on behalf of other incarcerated Muslims around religi- religious rights in prisons um, and just becomes a huge pain in the ass for, for NY um, docs. Like they're just, he's, he's doing these creative things with taking over solitary confinement, he's writing writs and suing the warden and then eventually the state commissioner and then eventually Governor Rockefeller. And he leaves in 64 when when Malcolm breaks. Cause Malcolm was a big influence for him and model. Um, and he, he also gets out that same year and starts a radical bookstore in Buffalo. And he, it's just incredible. He's like working at the steel mill during the day and, and at this radical bookstore at night. And in 67, when um, there's the uprising in Buffalo, he's, you know, housing people who are getting tear gassed in the streets. And it's sort of this like, um, epicenter of the uprising. And right after that, he gets framed um, and sentenced to 30 to 40 years by an all white jury. And he spends the next seven or eight years as a political prisoner. Um, there's all these Martin softer defense committees that form. He wins a couple of huge cases. One of them, Constance Baker Motley, um, Rules that he's, you know, cruel and unusual punishment for the years that he spent in solitary. He actually wins damages, even though he can never collect on them. Um, and he just becomes a really important figure. Uh, he becomes an anarchist. So Lorenzo Kimboa Irvin talks about meeting Martin while he's inside um, in the late 60s and being introduced to Black anarchism through through Martin. Um, and eventually, his sentence is commuted due to the sort of massive campaign um, in '75. And that was where I sort of thought that this whole story ended. And I remember thinking, how am I going to, you know, he lives until 2015. Like I actually wrote a letter to him before he passed away. So how do I get from 75 to 2015 Mm. in like an epilogue? And then I got in touch with um, this guy in Passaic, New Jersey, Sandy Shivak. And he just laid out this whole other life that Martin had after he got out where he, they bought up old buildings um they got some government grants and were paying you know teenagers in the neighborhood in Pesake to to do construction work and turn these old buildings into below rent uh below market price apartments for people and they started a daycare center and he would do political education during the day um so anyway that's his life that's the biography in a in a 5 minute nutshell um but i i'm just yeah it's been an incredible project to to dive into and the people around him have been so generous with their time
1: that's amazing
2: and do you know yet like when it's coming out or is
1: it still too early to know that <laughs> just wondering if we can keep an eye out or too early <laughs> to tell
2: question. No. <laughs> i mean yeah you can keep an eye out you're gonna We'll your keep eyes. an eye out um, <laughs>
1: yeah we'll be it's vigilant gonna, for it
2: yeah it's gonna be a couple <laughs> years i'm really in the early stages of it but um cool. But yeah, it's gonna well, be great. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Looking um, forward to it. Looking forward to having you back. Um, yeah, and hopefully, yeah. you know, it's uh we're not, you know, uh we're not dealing with a global pandemic at that time. Uh and we can talk about this and you know, this whole thing in, in retrospect. But mm-hmm. um yeah, really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, Brian, do you have any last questions?
1: um no i just i i want to
0: thank you for joining us garrett and um i definitely
1: want to encourage folks to pick up uh garrett's first book those who know don't say the nation of islam the black freedom movement and the carceral state um a lot to talk about in here that i hope that we can talk about on the next episode um that we didn't get to today um But fantastic book, and I'm really excited about the next one. And uh, I'm just very grateful for your time and for the work that you do, Garrett. So thank you.
2: Yeah, same. This was great. We didn't talk about the first book, so there's no spoilers at all. It's just all new people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like that was a little disrespectful that we didn't. No, not at all. It's great. Go check out the book. It's all new. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I know uh I know a couple of people that got that book that you know had uh rave reviews uh about it and uh yeah, it just um yeah. Absolutely. I have
1: I have rave, rave reviews for it. I and mean, I don't want to do that that thing that people do where they're like, "Oh, this thing that happened in history is like the exact same thing that's happening now." But <laughs> there were definitely a lot of parts yeah. of this book where I was reading yeah. something and I was like, 19, in like the 1960s, huh? Like, this sounds like you could just carbon copy it right on over to today and the way that people talk about, uh, you know, police reform and human relations training and like professionalization and um, there's a lot yeah. in, in this book. So I highly, highly recommend it.
2: Well, thank you both for having me on. It was truly a pleasure and I look forward to part two. Yeah, um,
0: absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently, and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com.
1: Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonnstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.